listening to COP26 Special. What's at stake? Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles. I'm the EBRD's Managing Director for Communications. Uh, today, we're looking ahead to one of the most important international events of this year, and probably uh, for some time beyond, COP26, or the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, which brings the international communities together to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. With the COVID crisis on our hands and the climate emergency requiring urgent action, the world must act now, but even that might not save us from what the climate scientists call hell on earth. Earlier this year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's leading authority on climate science, has issued a stark warning that human activity has changed the Earth's climate in unprecedented ways. Some of the changes now are inevitable and irreversible. Time is running short and we must act now. Challenges are very real, the scale is unprecedented, and the politicians and international community need to address them urgently. The EBRD operates in some of the most vulnerable economies in the world, and we know firsthand the scale of the challenge that this climate emergency presents. Today, I'm joined by some of the outstanding minds who will help us understand what's at stake, the prospects, and the implications of COP26. Professor Mike Spence is a Nobel Laureate in Economic Sciences. He's also a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Philip H. Knight Professor Emeritus of Management in the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. John Pisani Ferry is a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He holds the Tommaso Padaciapo Chair of the U European University Institute in Florence and is a senior fellow at Bruegel. Beata Javorczyk is the EBRD Chief Economist and Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford. We'll be hearing from all three of them shortly, but ahead of that conversation, the EBRD's president, Odile Renaud Basso, has sent us this message. Good afternoon. In less than a month's time, COP26 in Glasgow will bring the world together to accelerate action towards the goal of the Paris Agreement and the UN Convention on Climate Change. Governments will have a critical opportunity to speed up progress toward meeting those goals through ambitious commitments to reducing carbon emissions. The stakes are very high indeed. This is not some abstract structure we are facing anymore. We are already experiencing extreme weather today, and it is growing more frequent and more severe with every year that passes, as shown this summer. We need to set ourselves even more ambitious goals, and policy and delivery mechanism should be revised accordingly. Failing that, by 2040, many adverse climate developments are likely to be locked in. And they will be so severe that whole nations will be simply unable to cope. On top of the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared with pre-industrial temperature, we have to help communities and habitats to adapt to climate change. Crucially, and very relevant for international financial institutions such as the EBRD, we have to mobilize more climate finance and to collaborate more closely to deliver the results we need. Today's EBRD Econ Talk addresses these issues, vitally important as they are for the future of our planet. And I'm glad that we have a great team of experts for you today to discuss them. Experts who have sought, researched, and published on this subject with distinction for a long time. Thank you so much, Beata, for organizing once again such a great discussion on such an important theme. And I look forward to following the debate. 
Thank you, Oliver. Thank you very much, Odile, for joining us. And uh, a few housekeeping rules before we get into the discussion. This event, as you know, is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page, as well as via Zoom. Uh, if you're a Facebook live viewer, please post your questions in the comments and we'll pick them up. Uh, and indeed, we will actually be asking some of these questions uh, towards the end of the, uh, of the event, uh, where we'll throw it open and I'll put some of your questions to our to our panel. Uh, on Zoom, of course, please make sure you mute yourself and keep your video off. You can put questions, if you're on Zoom, to the panel in the chat box uh, and introduce yourself when you post your question, by the way. We always like to know who's asking the question. Uh, we're going to take your questions in the last 20, 30 minutes or so, uh, so roughly probably about uh, an hour or so from now. Uh, let's start with our panel and just remind you, we have our three members of the panel right here. And the question I'd like to start for all three of you is, what do you think is really at stake at COP26? And Michael Spence, maybe I'll start with you. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I, um, I'm looking forward to hearing what my colleagues uh, have to say. I, I, I agree with, uh, with the president's uh, statement. It, this is an urgent moment. The, the way, so let me just say the way I think about it, and I think it's consistent with with the views of many people. I, the thing that struck me was the IPCC report this summer, uh, which was much less guarded and much more aggressive than anything they put out before. Um, they're scientists, they don't overstate things, but they basically said, you know, we're gonna have climate change associated with 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, rise in average global temperatures for sure. And then the summer brought us a kind of vivid uh, picture of what that really means in terms of the severity, frequency, and global scope of, of these events. Um, and so, and then the second thing they said is, but there's a big job to do, which is, you know, 1.5 degrees, you know, we don't know exactly what it's going to mean for us, but, but much higher than that is a whole lot worse, probably. Uh, and so, the, so I think the big job in Glasgow, and I hope they don't get distracted, is to increase substantially the aggressiveness of the commitments, especially by the major players, uh, to the point that they start to look like they get us in the vicinity of something that's consistent with holding the line at 1.5 degrees um, Celsius increase and the climate change that goes with it. Now, th there's lots of other agendas that will be pursued there, but I hope this one doesn't get lost in the shuffle. And so it's got to be aggressive and it's got to be and be perceived as 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 fair. Um, and, you, you know, if I could just say a few more words, we're now at somewhere between 32 and 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year, and we have not peaked. We thought we might have in the pandemic, but yeah, that was a, you know, a lull. Uh, if the global economy grows at 3%, and you know, there's a lot of emerging economies and, 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 and developing countries that still have a lot of growth uh, potential in them, and we hope they don't you know, uh, get stalled out. Um, and if we're gonna get somewhere in the vicinity of a reasonable level of, of annual emissions by 2040, people talk about 2050, I think the shorter time horizons are, are kind of more interesting and more important. Then the, then the carbon intensity of the global economy has to come down at the rate of approximately 7% a year. Uh, and that's an extraordinarily rapid decline. I mean, that's similar to the kind of sustained high growth rates that we saw in the developing countries that, you know, the, the, the best in class, you know, over, over 20 year periods. 
So that's just an enormous challenge. I don't think we can get there in the short run. The question is, uh, can we get there in the long run? This is going to take, by current estimates, you know, investment on a global level of somewhere in the range of three to three point five trillion dollars, probably 50 50 public and private. Um, and the last thing I want to say, so there's just a huge, huge job and not a whole lot of time left to fritter around. But the, the last thing I'd say may be controversial, and I'm happy to be criticized by, by uh, Beate uh, and John. But if you look at the global admissions and take the big players, so to speak, China, the US, the rest of North America, the EU, India, and Japan, they account for 71% of global emissions. Everybody else uh, pretty much is well under a billion tons a year. Um, and some of them are really truly small. Now, they matter because they're gonna be affected by climate change. But my personal opinion is that the, the, the big opportunity and challenge is, to, is if the big players can find a way, notwithstanding their tensions and stuff to come together uh, and make a dent in this because they, because if they don't, uh, you know, there isn't much hope if you're at 70% of, of total emissions. So I'll stop there. Then. Michael, thank you. And some very sobering figures there. We'll come back and explore perhaps some of those uh, in, in a few minutes. But let's move on to Jean Pisani Ferry. What do you think is at stake this time? I would start with credibility. Um, the Paris Agreement is a sort of miracle. When it was uh, agreed upon in um, 2015, uh, many, many people said it, it's, it cannot work because uh, there's nothing mandatory. It's all voluntary um, pledges um, and, and a monitoring mechanism that at, time was, uh, at the time was perceived as being relatively weak. And we know from, from economic analysis that uh, in, in principle, that's not a kind of arrangement that can solve uh, the climate uh, problem because um, any emission anywhere uh, in the world has exactly the same effect. So the incentive to free ride on the other country's effort is enormous. Uh, and to solve this, uh, this problem of collective action, uh, the Kyoto Protocol had gone for a mandatory requirement determined on a country by country basis for the advanced countries, but then it collapsed because the emerging countries were not part of the agreement. And so uh, advanced countries said, what, what the point of reducing our emissions if emerging countries, and especially those growing fast, like, like China, are not part of the agreement. So eventually, the agreement was on having this uh, relatively uh, weak and, and sort of uh, in this field, doom, in principle, doomed to fail agreement on uh, putting forward voluntary um, uh, pledges, uh, the, 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 the call in, in the national determining uh, contribution. Um, and, and aggregating all that uh, and going back to the, the global community and saying, here is the result of what you've committed to, and here is what you sh we should be achieving uh, in order to uh, actually uh, keep the rising temperature below to the degree of below 1.5. And so it was uh, hard to believe it would, it would work. Something happened nevertheless. And the thing that happened is that a number of, of communities uh, mobilized around the, the, the Paris Agreement. 
um, civil societies, um, you know, the, the, the very fact that, that numbers have are put forward uh, means um, in, in public opinion in civil societies there is much mobilization for climate, especially among the young people, but also the business sector. The credibility of the Paris Agreement was sufficient for companies to start wondering whether it's better to invest in the green economy or in the, or in the greening of the economy or to keep on investing in the brown economy. And a number of them started moving towards the, the greening uh, of the economy. Mm -hmm. um, and technical progress uh, uh, in the field of renewables, in the field of batteries, uh, is fast enough so that the, this, this, this investment into the, 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 the green, the, uh, technologies is proving uh, to be profitable. So that's momentum we're seeing. And if you look at the valuation of renewable uh, energy uh, companies as opposed to fossil fuel energy companies, it's spectacular the degree to which the valuation of those uh, renewable energy companies has, has made progress. So there is something happening. Now, all that hinges on the, uh, the idea that in the end, states are going to deliver on their commitments. If the states, if the conclusions uh, become that, you know, it's, it's not working because simply they don't want to, to commit sufficiently or, or they do not deliver on their commitments or uh, that public opinion is putting pressure on, on them not to increase the price of carbon, they don't want to price the carbon because of social consequences, etc then there is a risk of uh, all what has been achieved so far uh, being put into question. You know, companies wondering, are we going really to invest, uh, you know, to change our equipment, to, to direct our research to something uh, completely different, if in the end, it's not going to happen. And if in, in the end, uh, you know, governments do not deliver. So credibility, I would say, is, is, a, is the first. Now, let me mention two other issues quickly, which are also important. One is the one that Mike mentioned, you know, the, about the big players. And I think it's especially important uh, to uh, see if China and the US, despite all the rivalry and all the tensions, are able uh, to sort of care about the question of, of, uh, of climate change and to come to some sort of agreement, implicit at least, uh, that they will uh, actually contribute. Now, we're in a situation uh, that's fairly uncertain with uh, the US committing, but not putting forward much uh, in terms of the actual means that are going to contribute to this uh, um, uh, commitment, especially not the pricing of carbon. And China having not yet uh, said exactly what it intends to commit to, um, and uh, there is a game being played on uh, whether uh, this question of climate is going to be separated from the many other fields of conflict, be it on trade, be it on technology and investment, and not to speak of geopolitics. And that remains uncertain as we speak. So I see something that's not going to be solved in Glasgow, but uh, in the background is extremely important. And finally, uh, and also echoing what you what, uh, what we're saying, there's a whole question of multi-speed decarbonization. So Europe is committed to going fast, is going committed now to politically to carbon neutrality 2050. 
actually putting forward plans that have yet to be uh, you know, finalized and approved for a, a, a deep reduction in the, in the uh, carbon intensity by 2030, which start being re real because it means decisions now and it means changes you know, in the years to come. Um, if other uh, economies go, to, go at a different speed, how are we going to deal with that? What, what the consequences for trade, what the consequences for investment of multi-speed decarbonization. And obviously that brings us to the whole discussion on the carbon adjustment uh, mechanism at, at the border. So these are important issues. Thank you very much, Sean. And actually uh, we'll come back to that as well. Just a bit like Mike's figures, you know, I've got some worries about Paris being the high watermark of diplomacy on this and the worry about how you make sure it isn't. And we'll, maybe we'll come to a question in that in just a second. But Beata, how do you see this? Well, thank you, Jonathan. So it's easy for governments to say, we need to take urgent action without specifying what they intend to do. It's very easy for governments um, to commit to ambitious goals, but push all the action into the future. It's a bit like with St. Augustine, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not just yet. Okay. What is very hard is to commit to concrete and immediate action, right? And it's difficult to do that because there is still some climate skepticism among the electorate because we have the collection action problem. Everybody wants to wait around for others to take action. And because we haven't had a very honest discussion with the electorate about, yes, this is going to cost money, but we have no choice, we need to take action. So I am hoping that what's at stake is first building public awareness, um, convincing climate skeptics that if the leaders of the large powerful countries do make commitments to climate action, this is real, this climate crisis is real, it's happening. Um, what's at stake is overcoming this collection uh, action, collective action problem and getting everyone to make commitments, preferably commitments that they will find hard to reverse in the future. And finally, what's at stake is demonstrating that you want to put the money where your mouth is, you, you are willing to pay and that should encourage others to follow. Thank you. Thank you, Viata. There's so many interesting yeah. thoughts in that first round. So I'm going to try and unpick a few, actually. Maybe I'll, I'll stick with you, Beata, then. I mean, in effect, you, you voice something that I, I find very worrying, which is that uh, we have not prepared the public in most countries for the trade-offs that are required uh, and for the financial agony which uh, is required. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question is that that's normally, you know, it's not just governments who failed that. It's not just, you know, all of us, everybody who has a role has, has failed to actually really tell people this is crunch point and this is what is required. And this is what's going it, it takes a long time to change the public mind. It's certainly not going to be done in a year or two because you have to have years of telling the public and preparing them for this sort of uh, major financial and economic change. Well, it takes courage, right? And I think if there is a lesson from our countries, from transition countries, it is that if you want to undertake reforms, 
serious reforms that will lead to some changes, to some improvements, you need to take decisive action really fast. You want to make your reforms hard to reverse for future governments. And you have only a short window to do that uh, because you may get voted out of the office. And this is really what takes courage, this overcoming this St. Augustine moment. Mm -hmm. Now, what gives me some hope is the fact that the pandemic has made it very visible to people that climate change matters. Um, in a survey that we ran uh, last summer, we saw that pe people reporting that um, the pandemic has made them more aware of other systemic risks such as climate change. And in many countries of operations uh, where there is a lot of skepticism, the numbers were quite impressive. What also gives me hope is engagement of youth, of, of young people, and that's not just young people, you know, in Nordic countries or Western Europe, um, these climate strikes have been also happening in countries where we are operating. So what really gives me hope is this momentum that has been building up. It's good to hear some hope. Thank you very much, Beata. Uh, Jean Pisani Ferry, let me come back to you. I mean, like I was at Paris, you know, I remember Paris very, very well and the agreement. Here's my worry on Paris. I worry that uh, it took an awful lot of diplomacy to get to Paris, uh, and there was a huge amount of effort went into that. How do we know that's not, at the moment, the high watermark of what, of what is possible? And, and one reason I, I worry about this is uh, if you look at countries, you know, they made their NDCs, their Nationally Determined Contribution Commitments, uh, over how they were going to contribute to, to keeping uh, the rise within, within check. A lot of them still have not been able to deliver on that. Some have not even started to draw up the detail of their of their NDCs. So does it worry you that getting beyond Paris is, is immensely difficult? Yes, I think that's what I was saying. You know that it's uh, it's it's difficult because uh, initially you can actually put forward uh, intentions and then you have to deliver. Um, I think, nevertheless, uh, what you're seeing is. Um, increased awareness of the of the reality of the problem. I mean, we sort of better spoke of uh, denial or skepticism. I think it it is decreasing. It still exists, but it is decreasing, definitely. Um, second, so you have this this mobilization of segments of, uh, of our societies, and and people are, are really concerned. And as I said, um, you know, the um, the business sector also is uh, uh, has moved. Um, take the, the auto industry. The auto industry uh, is now betting on the uh, on the electric uh, car. Um, the some manufacturers have already announced that they will stop putting new uh, combustion engine um, cars on the market in five years. So, so this this is a very very uh, speedy transition. So, I think the good reasons to um, uh, to still think that you know there is momentum. If this momentum were to be lost, then I would share this uh, deep pessimism. Uh, but there is momentum at the moment, and the, 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 the issue is not to lose momentum. Now, on something I would like to go back to is this notion of courage. Mm. Um, it's not only courage. I mean, it's it's a, there is a distributional problem. 
there is, a, there is a macro problem and there is a distributional problem. The macro problem is that we've got to recognize that the climate transition at the speed at which it needs to take place, um, not something that would sort of span over you know, 50 years, but at the speed at which it needs to take place now, and Michael mentioned this uh, speed, uh, you know, minus 7% per year, means that a lot of the existing capital stock will have to be put out of use prematurely, which means an economic cost. Huh? This is a net economic cost. Capital that could normally be uh, productive, profitable, um, has to be put aside. Um, and that implies uh, that you've got to invest more just to produce the same, but in, in a different way, in a, in, a, in a cleaner way. So in our jargon, we call it a negative supply shock. And so we've got to recognize that it's a negative supply shock um, and that it has implication for welfare in the short term and compared to a business as usual scenario that we know is not the real scenario because if we don't do anything, it's going to be much worse for, for everyone's welfare in the, in, in the big term. Um, but compared to what people are used to be doing, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a negative. And then compare with trade. Trade is a plus, you know, trade for, for trading country, there is a benefit. And we've been so bad at distributing this benefit so that you know, a segment of our population feel they've, they've, they've lost out in, in, in trade opening, in spite of it being a, a, a plus collectively, so that in principle, it could have been relatively easy to redistribute this benefit so that you know, the losers would not be many or they would be compensated. Now, climate is the same, but in spite of a plus, it's a minus, right? We've got to... Uh, distribute the burden being known that for, for, the, for the collectivity, for the nation as a whole, it's a minus. So that indicates the magnitude of the problem. And I sort of think that governments should, to be honest, governments should not pretend that they will be able to do things that they are not able to, to do. And they should not pretend that the transition be, will be a sort of a path of roses uh, that uh, you know, will uh, create lots of new and uh, nice jobs and well-paid jobs, etc. The, the reallocation uh, shock will be, will be significant, will be major. You know, people will have to change jobs. People will have to change region. Uh, so that's going to be uh, difficult. And we'd better recognize that and work on how to make sure that uh, you know, the costs are, 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 are distributed as well as we as, as we can, uh, both within the current generation and perhaps there is also the question of distributing across generation. Uh, that uh, should be part of the discussion, and that brings in the public finance I mentioned. John Cazani Perry, thank you very much. Just just turning to you, Michael Spence, and, and perhaps building on that a little bit. You know, you you gave us these figures earlier, a very sharp reduction that would be required year on year to actually. Hit those things. We, we've heard John Pisani Ferry talking there about, uh, in effect, taking some assets uh, out of action earlier. We, we used to talk quite a lot about stranded assets, uh, and the definition then of stranded assets, you know, seems actually much more narrow than what will be required if we're really talking about stranded assets and taking things out earlier. You're really having a very broad definition of stranded assets there, aren't you? Yes, you are. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think these points that. Uh, 
that Jean Beata made are really important. I mean, you know, we're going into a world, a highly decentralized, to some extent, world of enormous levels of investment. Uh, and expectations really matter. So if something happens in Glasgow that, you know, where we, you can put it any way you want, lose the momentum, people don't believe it's really going to happen. The public sector is not going to step up to their 50%, uh, not display the courage, as Beata said. We, you know, then, then I think we could kind of lose the game pretty, pretty quickly. Um, let me just say, this stranded assets is very important. It looks different depending on where you are in the world. And and I would add to what John just said, these distributional things are really important. And they're in some sense, the hardest thing to get, to deal with. And there's an international dimension to it, which will get discussed, you know, front and center. And the reason I think some of us think that, uh, you know, we need to start with the major players is most of these folks you know, well, all of them are either, you know, developed economies with relatively high incomes or, or, you know, high middle income countries or are on the glide path to be. So they're not, you know, they're not the low income countries because they don't have emissions that are that, that large. But if you look at the developing world broadly, uh, unless you think their growth is going to stop, a fair amount of the assets that they're going to be living on 20 years from now are going to be built between now and then, mm. right? So the, so the question of, you know, sort of how much replacement, you know, or significant modification of assets you need to do depends on where you are. And that problem is most severe um, in the developed economies. Uh, so the resistance is probably correspondingly severe as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of diplomacy to be done there, I think, as well. Um, thank you very much, Michael. We've got lots more questions that I certainly want to ask you. By the way, if you're watching this, listening to us, um, put your questions uh, in the chat function if you're on Zoom, and we'll pick up some of them to ask a little later on. Uh, and if you're on uh, Facebook Live, then please put them in the comment section. We'll pick those up as well. Uh, let me ask a few more questions, though. Michael Spence, I'll stay with you. I mean, you've written that climate change is quickly and I quote, becoming a, a noticeable factor in macroeconomic performance. Do you want to unpick that a bit for us and explain what you mean? Yeah, I'll take a shot at it. And then I think Jean probably will <laughs> want to talk about that too. Is mm -hmm. uh, an area of his distinct expertise. Um, I mean, anecdotally, uh, you know, you've got, uh, pick any, any extreme weather event by type, floods, fires, extreme heat, hurricanes, typhoons, typhoons, drought, we are experiencing, and I think this summer really was a kind of a turning point for many people. So I looked at a, a flood map of the world. I mean, they're literally distributed pretty much all over the globe. You know, so the notion that they're A, isolated, B, don't really show up, you know, are a big deal locally, but don't really show up in any sort of normal measures of economic performance is a thing of, it looks like it's going to be a thing of the past. Um, if, if you sort of get a little bit more kind of serious about it and ask, well, via what channels are they going to start to show up? Well, they'll surely show up in risk assessments uh, in, in way more dimensions than we have time to go into. Business risk assessments, you know, investor risk assessments, central banks, you know, are on, on a glide path to kind of take this seriously. It's going to affect the cost of capital. Um, it will show up in the costs and availability 
of insurance uh, in lots of dimensions. And, and as a complete aside, I would say the combination of the existing you know, private and social insurance structures aren't even remotely close to adequate to dealing with the kind of shock-prone world that the, the IPCC says we're going to live in regardless of what we do uh, in, Glas in Glasgow and afterwards. So and down the road, I wouldn't be surprised if it start, starts to show up in, you know, in, 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 in measurable terms, in macro terms, in food security and food prices and so on. So the bottom line is, I mean, I guess you, you wouldn't say we've seen this all yet, but the, but the warning signs are clear. There's a Fed study, um, a, a study by some researchers at the Federal Reserve that says that the data seem to suggest that climate um, is going to increase both the frequency and severity of recessions. So, you know, while it's not a done deal, or you wouldn't want to bet your, bet your kid's savings on it, I, I think it's a pretty a pretty good bet. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting. You know, yesterday uh, London had amazing torrential rain, by the way, and I was reading that the ten wettest summers and wettest Septembers in London have been the past ten years. Uh, so right. you know, way beyond anything that that preceded that. Uh, Jean Pisani Ferry, to take up that thought that, that Michael Spence started, I mean, you yourself, you've argued that climate policy is macroeconomic policy. So, um, you know, carry on where Mike left off. Uh, the, I think the, the, the problem we're facing is that we, we thought um, there were two different worlds. Um, one in which we, we're tackling climate change. Um, and then we have to sort of you know, incur the, the, the cost of doing it. And the other one is the one in which we're not tackling climate change and we're going to face uh, the disruption, the, um, the certainty, the risk that uh, Michael was, was mentioning. In fact, we're going to most likely have to face both at the same time because uh, we're not anymore in the world where climate change is an issue for the day after tomorrow um, and then we have to prepare for it. That's the way we thought until very recently, you know? And all the macro community had this view that, oh yes, climate change is important, but it's not a problem for us. It's a problem for, you know, uh, people who will be in charge in 10, 20 years. Not anymore. Uh, so we, 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 we have to be facing at the same time, what we call the problem of adaptation. So how to deal with the consequences of a, of a worsened climate, and this brings not only uh, sort of an average increase in temperature, et cetera, with all this sort of predictable effect, but also the unpredictable effect of having a much more risky and much more, you know, uh, an environment in which extreme events are more frequent, et cetera. So which, um, which uh, means that the sort of, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, we thought we were in the great moderation. Everything was quiet. Inflation was uh, very stable at low level. Growth was uh, uh, you know, smooth. Uh, there was, uh, we, we had sort of got rid of the instability uh, created by inadequate policies and the policymakers had learned. And so um, that was a much nicer world. And uh, the we, then we had the, the, the homemade, you know, man-made financial crisis, but we are also uh, facing the, the, the consequences of this, um, of this climate uh, environment. So having to address at the same time the question of, of mitigation 
and the question of adaptation is going to be a big challenge. What I was saying in, my, in, the, in the paper you're referring to is that, um, so we have to get rid completely of this, this mindset of saying climate is for, for tomorrow and, and we're dealing with today's problem. It's becoming part of today's agenda big time. Uh, and uh, that means, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the economic policy community, the central bank, the IMF, the OECD, uh, the BRD, uh, you know, uh, treasury, national treasuries, etc. They have to integrate this dimension into uh, their their policy making, and which hasn't hadn't been done so far, um, for the reason I, I, I gave. And so they have to sort of find out what are the, the immediate implication of, of acting. And as I said, you know, also to uh, get a better sense of what are uh, the budgetary implications in Europe, we're going to reform, uh, we, we have this discussion on reforming the stability pact. What room should we make for, for green investment? Is it something that changes perspective? Uh, you know, increasingly it's clear that it's not going, the climate transition is not going to be triggered mainly by an increase in the price of carbon, which would have the side effect of yielding revenues for, for governments that they could then redistribute. But because uh, carbon pricing is unpopular, the US has said they don't want to do carbon prices. The EU is doing for a mix and you know the proposal by the commission of having carbon pricing uh, extended through the, the ETS uh, is being resisted by a number of governments. We don't know yet the outcome. So eventually it's going to be done uh, through regulation, subsidies, research, uh, uh, and it's going to cost because government will have to pay for the public investments, you know, the public building, the infrastructure, etc. And they will have to pay for the offsetting of the cost for the socially vulnerable segments of the population. So I think it's going to be a negative for public finances. And so that's also something we need to factor in, that there will be a fiscal cost of doing it. It's, it's perhaps, it's in my view, it's, it's most probably, if it's sustainable for countries that uh, have the fiscal space for it, it's something worth doing. And I'm sure that the future generation prefer to have a better environment and some more debt and, you know, uh, sort of uh, nicer, uh, uh, public finance situation, but a much worse uh, uh, environment. But but this is a new problem that uh, that emerges. You know uh, uh, what uh, what what the public finance uh, strategy for for doing it? What's uh, what sort of a desirable? What is acceptable? So I think this needs to be completely part of the macro discussion we we're having. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, not least of course there are many different competing debt build-ups, actually, which uh, future generations are going to have to deal with. And so I suppose, again, we can't see that in isolation. Uh, maybe that's a subject for later on. Beata, um, let's, let's quickly have a look at our countries of operations. You know, we operate as the EBRD in almost 40 economies. What are the challenges there in this arena for, for our countries of operation? Oh, is one of the bigger challenge. And I think it illustrates many aspects of the transition. So some of our countries of operations are coal producers. More than a third of Mongolia's exports are accounted for coal, right? You may think that you know, coal miners are a very well-defined group. You could take care of them. 
uh, if you close coal mines. But of course, it's not just coal miners. It, typically in the mining region, there's a whole ecosystem built around the mines. And if you look at direct and indirect employment associated with coal mining, it's 2% of total employment in Kazakhstan, 2.5% in Bosnia. So these are significant numbers. Um, two weeks ago, I was talking to the mayor of a Polish city of Zabrze, and she said, well, luckily my city has this first part of transition behind itself. We had a dozen mines, we closed them, we had a 25% unemployment rate, and now we are better, but we are bracing ourselves for our neighboring regions going through this transition because we realize that we are going to be hit. Now, the second aspect is um, power generation, electricity generation from coal. Three quarters of electricity in Poland, in Mongolia, in Moldova comes from coal. If you are in the EU and you have such an energy mix, um, carbon pricing, is going to be a hit to your competitiveness. Now, most of our countries of operation rely more on manufacturing than other countries with similar levels of income. And you know this has served them well throughout the pandemic. It is helping their recovery, but going into the future, uh, this energy mix can make them less competitive. And if they are not in the EU, then, carbon border adjustment tax is going something they will have to deal with. Again, if you look at, for instance, steel production in Russia, it is three times as energy intensive as in the EU. In Kazakhstan, it's twice as much um, energy intensive. Um, now, of course, there are exceptions. Think about Albania, 90% of electricity production comes from renewables. There is a free trade agreement with the EU, so they could rebrand themselves as a green manufacturing destination. Now, the final third aspect of coal is it is used by households to heat their homes. And you know, if you look at Poland, Kazakhstan, and Mongolia, purchases of coal by households are the highest in per capita terms in the world. And that means um, that higher prices of carbon, of coal, are going to hit people directly. Thank you. Thank you very much, Beato. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and, and in a way, hitting people directly takes me on to a, a topic which we've sort of touched on, but we haven't used the phrase, which is just transition, a just transition, and having a fair transition. Uh, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that because, uh, you know, there's been plenty of transitions in the world. They're very rarely fair. So why should a just transition, how will a just transition be possible? How do we make this fair burden sharing, Michael Spence? Well, first of all, let me just say, both Jean and Beata have, have emphasized, you know, that the distributional aspects of this transition are really important. And if you want to sort of trip it up and make it not happen, the best way to do it is to ignore them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the part that I've been involved in, uh, which is really difficult, has to do with uh, the global version of this. Not, you know. So the question is, in its most general form, who's supposed to do what, when, all right? And the developing countries, even though they now account for, you know, if you aggregate them up, uh, 
a quite substantial fraction of sort of global carbon emissions, their basic view is that we have to work out something, A, that doesn't disrupt our future growth potential, uh, at least not significantly, even though they admit that, you know, like everybody else on the planet, they, they, they're going to be subject to adverse, uh, extreme adverse consequences down the road if we don't do something. Um, and I think there's some, you know, progress on this front. I mean, the early forays into this were hopeless. I, I remember a delegation went from the UN to India, which at the time had per capita emissions, you know, that were practically barely measurable and said that, you know, in 20 or 30 years, the proposal was they cut their emissions by 20%, as opposed to the developed countries, 80%. And they said, you know, wait a minute, what, why should we be cutting our per capita emissions by 20% if we, you know, we're at like 10% of the global average now? I mean, it was just, anyway, we got way past that. Um, I, th I think, you know, a lot of this is going to be um, handled in detail. So let me just mention some things. You know, again, I'm, I'm, solar 10 years ago wasn't even within shooting distance of competitive. Now it, it's more than competitive, but it has to, but it requires significant investment. My friends tell me in the lower income countries that it, the picture looks different because the costs of capital are so high, right? So the, 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 over, the all in cost calculations just look different. You know, if you're sitting in, uh, a lower income country than if you're sitting in um, in Europe. And by the way, I admire Europe for for being not excessively, but well out in the lead um, on 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 climate issues. So I think we, what we've got to do is get the multilateral institutions in there, you know, and try to reduce the, the cost of capital via absorbing some of the risks and so on. That would be an example. In, in the most general form, I think, you know, there's going to be some technology that's needed. Um, and, and, and my view, for what it's worth, is the deal with the, with the rest of the world. And where you draw the dividing line matters. But, but the deal should be that the, the technology is developed by the high income and high middle income countries and transferred essentially at no cost uh, to the rest of the world. I don't think any other deal is going to be acceptable uh in you know to the to a broad enough group of countries the final thing i guess i would say jonathan is all transitions you know sideswipe people and produce winners and losers and I, I think you just in the spirit of the earlier remarks about being honest i think you have to say that's just true right and it and at some level it isn't really possible to uh, to uh to compensate a coal, a coal miner in poland or in appalachia uh, completely for sort of semi wiping out the the industry that you know three four or five generations worked in it it just you know it it sort of doesn't compute uh, you, you know I think one thing I said recently and something I wrote is that's important to remember which is losers is loser is not a permanent condition <laughs> yeah. right uh, and so the way I think about this is is honesty requires us to say this is pretty tough uh, for some people and the policy and investment should be focused on making that that negative shock and the transition to something that's rewarding and life-sustaining as as uh, as good as it can be made
Thank you, Michael. I mean, so Jean Pisani Ferry. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be talking then about a just transition. We should be talking about as fair as possible as transition, uh, you know, and, uh, or as just as possible, because just is a very absolute term. And listening to Michael Spence there, you know, absolutism may not be possible in this case. Yes, I, I, I agree, both internally and, uh, you know, uh, internationally. Internally, you have um, people, um, as, as Beate said, you know, working um, in, a, in a carbon intensive industry in a region that relies a lot of uh, carbon intensive products. Um, so the wrong job in the wrong place. Um, and and that's, uh, that's a terrible situation. And it's not going to be only the coal miners, it's also going to be people who, whose lifestyle, uh, even if they don't directly work for a, a carbon intensive industry, whose lifestyle depends on having two cars and uh, because they, they, they've moved to a cheaper uh, place where they can have a house and, uh, but they, they, the quality of the house is, is, is really bad. I mean, it requires a lot of investment to be uh, made uh, uh, carbon efficient. Uh, and then and then the two cars are, are, are there and uh, to replace them by electric cars is uh, also something that requires a lot of investment. So, so we're going to face many problems of this sort. And there was an interesting research recently put forward showing that uh, the uh, low-income people tend to be more often employed in, in carbon intensive sectors or on sectors that are indirectly affected by um, macroeconomic uh, shocks. So, so it's not going to be going to be a just transition, but, but you know, responsibility for, for policy is to sort of minimize the cost to the extent possible to help um, foster the, the, the transition to help, help you know, make the transition something that's collectively desirable um, and including for those who are, who are affected uh, to show them that there is a way out. And, and, and that's, a, that's a high mark uh, for policy to, to reach. Now, a word on the international dimension that Beate really uh, rightly uh, emphasized. So you have those countries that essentially rely on coal. And for them, the, the, the shock is, is now. Um, because uh, there's no choice but to reduce aggressively the reliance on, on, on coal, which is the worst possible uh, fossil fuel in terms of, of, of climate. Um, uh, and as you said, I mean, you know, when one third of your export consists in, in coal, uh, that's going to be a, a big, a big shock. And uh, you know, uh, are they? The EU uh, has a responsibility also, uh, or, or the advanced countries have a responsibility in, in, in you know, helping countries make this transition. But then we have the next, uh, the next generation. I mean, the next generation consists of countries exporting gas. So in the short term, they're going to be facing a high demand for gas. And we're seeing that already. Uh, because the gas is a, is a much more carbon efficient um, fuel than, than oil or, or even more coal. But that's going to be for 10 years or, or, or 15 years or 20 years. But eventually, if we want to go to carbon neutrality, we have also to get rid of gas. 
And then we have some countries that export uh, gas, uh, essentially that, uh, you know, that's almost all of their exports. Think of uh, Algeria or Azerbaijan, I mean, those countries. Um, so, so here we have some more time to help them adjust, but uh, they need to prepare for this adjustment because uh, if we're serious about the transition, it is also coming there. And Russia is also part of the, uh, of this uh, category because of its reliance on gas export. Thank you very much, uh, Jean. And I, I'm reminded as you were speaking there about houses, I'm speaking to you from a 1880s built house in London. I wouldn't even know where to start making it carbon efficient. And there are <laughs> millions of houses like that in this country alone. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Beata, you know, you, you, we've talked a lot about transition sideswiping populations, the EBRD countries of operations. Their populations have been sideswiped many times over many transitions over the past 30 years. Uh, how do you see a just transition when it comes to, to our countries of operation? I see credibility as the big issue, right? The populations have experienced very big structural changes and you know, not always they have been taken care of and losers have not been taken care of. And I think many people are rightly so going to be skeptical. And, you know, Jean was mentioning globalization and technological progress as two shocks that have affected the world in the last few decades and have led to huge increases in inequality and the Western world has a pretty poor track record when it comes to compensating the losers. So I think, you know, it's hard to be surprised that many voters will be skeptical. But, you know, let me bring in the firm dimension here. Um, Jean was mentioning capital becoming obsolete, need to invest in new ways of producing things. Who is going to do that? If you look at firms within a single country, the firm that will have the greatest incentive to invest is the firm that serves a very large market because it can split the cost of that investment, which often will be some sort of fixed cost, over many consumers. So we are going to see large multinationals, large exporters, making these adjustments first, making um, these investments. And that means that they will be prepared better than other firms uh, at regulation, at higher carbon prices. And as the, the low carbon transition progresses, they will gain market shares at the expense of smaller firms, national firms. So we will need to see not just people moving jobs from one sector to another, but from smaller firms in, to the bigger firms. And you know that's not going to be painless and it may not necessarily be very popular with voters that it's the, the foreign firms that are doing much better than smaller national firms. Thank you, Beata. Uh, in a few minutes, by the way, if you're watching or listening to this, we're coming to your question. So uh, again, let me tell you, you can put your questions if you'd like to, uh, to put them forward to us so our panel can answer them. You can put them on Facebook Live in the comments section. Uh, in, here on Zoom, uh, where we're talking as well, uh, you can put them in the chat section. And we'll ask a few of those if you could do that now. We will come to those questions in a few minutes. Uh, 
let's let's move on a little bit. I mean, you started talking there, Beata, about the private sector. So let me ask you, the three of you, about the private sector, because we've spent a lot of this time discussing what governments can do and uh, the debts that will be accumulated in doing it. Let, let's look at the private sector. Michael Spence, I mean, there's a massive role for the private sector part of the economy here. How do we incentivize the private sector to, to be going along the road that is required? Part of it is, you know, I mean, if you look at any reasonable, you know, development model, and development really is structural transformation. Uh, and so the experience of a wide range of countries is, is directly relevant, uh, you know, over a long period of time. It, you know, if, if, you, if you look at that, private sector investment is uh, complemented by public sector investment. Right. And if you take, you know, the second thing away, then you lower the returns to, to private sector investment, which is the proximate driver of the growth and employment agenda. And, you know, and things slow down dramatically. So I think, you know, item one on the list is the public sector uh, needs to step up and be an investor. Now, you know, Jean's right. You know, we've got to decide that brings in fiscal policy we have to decide how to, to distribute over generations we have to look at things like debt capacity well we probably need to look at taxes and unpopular as it is i mean i signed a letter that was directed at the united states government along with a lot of other people who are more important than me that basically said we need a carbon tax of some kind um, and it should be revenue neutral and used in the distributional agenda um, that that we've just talked about um but beyond that i mean i think you know i i uh, i know of lots of uh activity in the uh investment world uh that's targeted specifically at the energy transition i mean you know they're popping up like you know wildflowers actually and I think they're right. I mean, I think the 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 the, vision, the view on the part of major investment and investors and major investment firms is that we've reached a point where the commitments, in part by government, but but a lot by the private sector already, are such that the demand for solutions is huge. Uh, and the question is where <laughs> where are the solutions going to come from? Now, some of them we already have, so we can get around to doing it. Um, but some of them have to be created. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about, which might help the coal producers, but my friend John Brown, Lord Brown, who's now leading one of these investment firms, says we really ought to revisit, you know, various ways of car capturing carbon, hmm. um, you know, because we're going to be in the fossil fuel world for a fair amount of this transition in any version uh, of the reasonable scenario. So I think the private sector is gearing up uh, to make a major contribution and that and they'll and they'll be the returns will be higher and they'll be better at it if the governments you know kind of step up step up in parallel at least at least that's how I see it I, if I can I'd like to make one other comment mm. um, it, to go back to the international thing you know I, I spent a fair amount of my time in the last 15 20 years worrying about growth patterns and development uh, in the in the developing world. And I'm really worried, um, you know, that lower income countries 
have lots of governance problems. They have very little fiscal space. Uh, they have challenging demographics. Uh, and they have to kind of adapt growth models to the digital transformation that we're going through. If you add uh, a pandemic with a vaccine rollout that's going extremely badly for the lower income countries, or well, let's put it slowly, um, and then add to that these shocks that we're talking about, then I'm worried that you know we're going to sort of lose them on the way through. I mean, I've believed in convergence for all of the last two decades, but I think there's a chance, there is a chance uh, that the, the, the late starters, you know, the ones that are still in the low income category just can't, don't have the resources to manage the, you know, headwinds of this magnitude. So, so I hope that sort of lands somewhere on some international organization's agenda, I guess. Maybe partially on ours. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Michael Spencer. John Pisani, Ferry, uh, this question of the private sector and how do we get them to do more of the heavy lifting? Important question indeed. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's, uh, it's about small and large firms because you have uh, quite a number of, of startups and firms growing fast in this, in this sector. I mean, the part of the large firms are being challenged and, and seriously challenged by um, this transition. Uh, so there's a, a process of uh, creative destruction going on. But it's true that firms that are uh, very profitable, um, they have the means to uh, undergo the, tr the transition. Uh, uh, I mean, if you want to go back to the auto industry, it's better to be Toyota or, uh, or um, you know, BMW. Uh, than to be the sort of marginal producer, uh, which is struggling uh, and doesn't make much of a profit because the, the simply the sheer size of the investment that have to be made to sort of retool the industry uh, mean that um, it's going to be uh, seriously challenging for, for those uh, marginal producers. Um, but again, I mean, all that adds to the fact that uh, I think you, you, I fully agree with what you said, that it's not just transition from one job to another, it's also transition from one firm to another. I mean, the, the, the reallocation is going, going to be a magnitude, uh, an order of magnitude bigger because of this uh, uh, firm dimension. A word on what uh, Michael was just saying, um, I very much agree with him on this question of, uh, of taxes. Um, so there is this view by economists that uh, a, a revenue neutral um, uh, carbon tax uh, whose proceed would be redistributed on a per capita basis or on a per capita basis corrected for you know, some locational um, dimensions um, so that uh, you would take into account the sort of heterogeneity uh, that can be larger um, uh, would, uh, would be the right way to, to go. Um, the thing is that people don't seem to find it very acceptable. Uh, people, it doesn't elicit trust in the, in the taxation of carbon. Uh, somehow the taxation of carbon is perceived as a, as a trick. Uh, I mean, I'm speaking from a country which had an experience with it and because of policy mistakes that were made actually, because uh, so the, the mistake that were made, it was taxed uh, at the 
the end, you know, at the pump, uh, if you wish, so people could see very clearly um, that they were paying for it. Uh, second, the proceeds were uh, only very partially redistributed. The total redistribution rate was 25%, which is way too low uh, to sort of offset some of the social consequences. And then at the same time, you had the perception that the, those flying on, on jets, you know, um, the jets, uh, flights are not, kerosene is not taxed, so they could escape this taxation, so when it was, it was unfair. Um, so if you add all three, uh, it explained why, although it certainly was not the only reason, but I mean, this was a trigger. Um, and uh, it shows how difficult it is to design a, a redistribution system that uh, actually uh, you know, commands some, um, some trust on the part of, uh, uh, of the citizens. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, well, on the last yeah. point on, on yeah. the latecomers, the, the countries, I agree. Uh, I agree certainly uh, very much. At the same time, if you're if you're a, a, a country at a low development level, uh, not emitting very much, um, and you can perhaps uh, afford to wait until technologies uh, become more uh, you know cost uh, cost effective, affordable for you. And and actually, one of the topics you've touched on, John, you know, we've been asking the audience for their questions, by the way, please, uh, please send them in either on the chat function on Zoom or the comment uh, function on Facebook Live. But uh, one thing we will come back to imminently is carbon pricing, actually, which you've just started to, to touch on. Uh, Beata, I remember very well, you know, in a lot of EBRD countries of operations, if I think about investment in renewables, for example, solar and other renewables, it certainly wouldn't have happened without the private sector in the last few years. And then it wouldn't have happened without, in our case, in our countries of operations, uh, multilateral development banks, including the EBRD, uh, helping that process, including actually setting the policy frameworks to actually set up a renewable sector. So it shows that clearly there is a role in all of this for the private sector in EBRD countries of operation. Absolutely. Um, so I think we have become a little bit downbeat in, in our discussion, but Having said that, a lot is happening, right? Think about Ben Ben Solar Farm in Egypt, which we supported, or think about this um, battery gigafactory in Poland, which we supported. Also, um, firms can become agents of change. You know, research shows that foreign acquisitions, so acquisitions by multinationals of firms in developing countries lead to improvements in energy efficiency. Right? And that's simply because uh, energy efficiency is good business. Um, if, you are if you are improving productivity, if you are installing new machinery, new equipment, which is what typically happens after a foreign acquisition, you can easily improve energy efficiency and um, CO2 emission intensity will, will go down. Um, what we also see is um, that exporters have every incentive to lobby their governments um, to more to make environmental regulations stricter. So, so let me elaborate. Um, if you are an exporter who is facing customer pressure abroad um, to become more environmentally friendly, more green, um, you, you will adjust your production. 
But then if you try to sell the same product at home, and this product may be more expensive than product adhering to less stringent standards, you will be undercut by domestic competitors. So as an exporter, you have an incentive to lobby so that everyone at home will face similar standards to what you face abroad. Two years ago in our transition report, we were showing results of a survey um, indicating or depicting what was driving environmental concerns in firms. And two factors stood out. One was customer pressure, and that was typically something that was affecting um, exporters and foreign affiliates. And second was government taxes, government regulation. So I think what we need is very clear, unambiguous messaging from governments. And when governments do that, firms will hear that and they will adjust. You know, probably the most striking figure from the transition report 2019 was the answer to the following question. If you, as a firm, have not invested in improving energy efficiency, why is that? Almost two thirds of firms said, it is not a priority relative to other investments. And you know, lack of access to credit was a distance second. And that indicates that there is a lot of work to be done when it comes to building awareness, to sending signals to firms and multilateral development banks, um, governments can do it by mandating subsidized energy audits, by showing firms that actually there may be savings they are not aware of. Thank you, Beata. Okay, let's uh, come to some of those audience questions now. Um, Ines Rocha has asked the question, how much of an impact will the current energy crisis and soaring gas prices have on Europe's or the world's green ambitions? Can it accelerate support for renewable green energy or instead slow down green efforts by governments who may need to deal with the slower economic recovery and social unrest resulting from higher energy prices? That's a very interesting question because we're already seeing, obviously, squeals of pain from people saying these gas prices uh, rises and other price rises in energy are going to add you know, hundreds of dollars a year to, to people's uh, bills. Uh, and that's even before we've taken into account uh, the green requirement, any green levies. In fact, there's been talk in some governments of dropping green levies in order to alleviate the gas price rises. So what, what does that tell us, Michael Spence, about uh, how many shocks uh, you know, the, the economy can deal with at once? I think governments are going to have to buffer the shock, um, especially here in Europe. Uh, I know the government here in Italy is doing that, and I suspect that will be true or across the European Union. Um, and that will use up some fiscal space. So, you know, it's not as, it's not as if it's irrelevant. But, but I think, you know, at least from my point of view, that, you know, I, maybe this is a hope rather than a prediction. Um, the, the, we're going to be in the fossil fuel world with its usual ups and downs and supply and demand shocks and other things for a fairly long time. Um, and what we've got to do is overlay on it um, a, 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 an aggressive but long-term agenda that involves declining, you know. So, I, I mean, I think that, you know, bottom line is I'd, I'd be discouraged and maybe even a little surprised if the mishmash in global supply chains and energy prices, which has come as a 
a complete surprise and it's kind of serious right i mean it's entering the inflation discussion and a whole lot of other things so it's not as if it's an uninteresting subject mm. but i i i guess i would be disappointed and a bit surprised if it really derailed uh the the energy transition uh challenge thank you michael uh, jean pisani ferry uh do you, do you share that surprise or are you yeah, yes well, I mean, compared to the size of what we are uh, facing, it's it's minor, right? Uh, I mean, the 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 price of carbon. Um, the report, the Stiglitz uh, Stern report, puts it at seventy five dollars per ton mm. um, uh, in twenty thirty, and some uh, say it has to be much higher. So some reports. Uh, consider that uh, the, at least the shadow price of carbon, so the price that which guide decisions, uh, public decisions should be closer to $200 per ton. So the, um, the increase that we are, we're facing now may look second order. Now the question for government is how they, they respond to it and, and you know, what degree of consistency they, they're able to, to display. Because um, what's troubling for, for households is that they're, they're told that they've got to move to gas because it's better than, than, uh, than oil or fuel, okay, for, for heating systems, at least as a transition energy for the next 10 years or 15 years. And then exactly at the same time, the, the price of gas increases. So, so you, you're likely to be puzzled, you know, if you were considering changing your heating system, and and suddenly you see the price of of, of gas goes to, of gas goes goes to the roof, um, and 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 then if, if the government rushes to to sort of limit this this increase in in, uh, in prices in energy prices at the same time when it says uh, you know we've got to price it um, to price carbon with repercussion. So the risk of completely incoherent messages being sent to, to public opinion is significant. Thank you very much. Beata, we, we've touched on already over the past hour that uh, many EBRD countries of operations are very energy intensive. Uh, and uh, therefore, this energy price shock is going to be quite painful for some countries. Uh, how do how do they navigate that at the same time as dealing with what could be the the green shock? Uh, hopefully, with a positive outcome. I wonder whether we can use the this current increase in energy prices to build public support for greater investment in renewables, and I wonder whether we can use it to build greater support for public transport infrastructure, right, for, for creating more um, public transport infrastructure. So rather than focusing on the negatives, um, we could talk about investments that we'll need, we will need to undertake uh, for the green transition and how this investment can help offset the negative shock of, of higher energy prices. But one thing we haven't talked about yet is you know, the fact that some of the investments we need um, have a high multiplier, right? If we are talking about insulation of municipal or residential buildings, including yours, Jonathan, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, 
or if we are talking precisely of invest about investment in in public tr transport, these are often very labor intensive projects. So um, that could help, hopefully. Okay, thank you, Beata. Another question from uh, Helena Schweiger. How can we measure environmental impact in emerging markets, which are behind the developed countries on ESG disclosures, but more importantly, on average, they have lower awareness of environmental issues and worse green management practices. Uh, again, it, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, on emerging markets and are they equipped uh, to do what is required? Uh, Michael Spence. I would have said that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, the gap in, you know, in, in terms of awareness, commitment and so on uh, was pretty large. My sense is it's declined a lot. Uh, that if you do the kinds of surveys that Beata's talking about, uh, you find that the level of concern, commitment, you know, especially among the young is, is really fairly high. Now, when you get to sort of measurement systems, which are really hard problems, uh, especially in this area, uh, and transparency and things related to it, yes, they're behind. Uh, there's no question. I mean, they're, you know, it's not just in the energy transition area, they're behind in uh, just normal kind of accounting. Uh, you know, standards and, and stuff like that. I, I, my prediction is that, you know, if you go back even further, um, the lion's share of the developing world was in the lower income category. And now, at least in terms of people, uh, the majority are now in middle income countries. They have, uh, you know, more resources. They're more inclined to respect intellectual property. And in general, you know, the standards uh, in this area are improving. Uh, now, maybe they could improve faster, but I think, you know, if you, I think this is an area where you require patience, right? If you, you know, if you, if you think you can kind of fix something overnight um, in this category, it, it's probably not very realistic, but I, I think we're moving, bottom line is we're moving in the right direction. Okay. Um, Jean Pisani Ferry, I remember at Paris, so there was a lot of talk about capacity you know, the capacity of emerging uh, economies to really cope with what was required. Uh, is that, you know, in this context of this question we've been asked, is that something that still concerns you? I, I don't have much to add. I haven't studied, uh, you know, uh, this, this aspect recently, so I'd better pass. Okay. Beata, from our uh, EBRD countries of operations, what about this question? Well, you know, one of the positive side effects of low carbon transition is lower air pollution, um, lower levels of particulate matter in the air. This is a problem in many cities in our countries of operation. And I think if people see improvements in air quality, and these improvements often translate um, reasonably quickly into better health outcomes, um, this should build support. So I agree with Mike that awareness has increased, but I think we are not done. I think mm -hmm. we need to be talking more about this. Um, and, you know, we see this with vaccine skepticism. People are acting against their self-interest um, because they don't trust science. And, you know, climate change is a much harder problem. So I think we are not done. And, you know, we as an institution, we should use the power of the pulpit to talk 
to our countries to talk to the public, because in many countries, I think we are perceived as a uh, independent, credible source of information, and, and we should definitely use that. Thank you, Beata. Okay, let, let's try to uh, conclude here. Um, if, if we were meeting all of us uh, in November, you know, and uh, COP26 has wrapped up, what would you hope would be the one thing that had been concluded at, at COP26 that would make you happy, that would give you hope that we had made progress after Paris? Is there one thing that stands out that you'd really like to see, you know, having been done uh, as we gather uh, around in November? Uh, Michael Spence. What I would like to see is the major players make um, credible and to use Beata's term, you know, credible and partially irreversible <laughs> concrete yeah. commitments with time with timestamps on them with timestamps on them. And I, don't, I really don't like this 2050 2060 stuff because it doesn't really solve the problem. Uh, but yet, if, if we came out with that um, and, and then I, I think you know, we would have solved the problem that, that Jean talked about at the start, which is we would not dramatically disrupt and set back the expectations that it were turned loose in Paris. And that would be a great outcome. Jean, you know, that's an outcome you clearly would like, but is there, is there yeah, one thing yes, you're hoping Let me just add one point we didn't discuss so much, which is this trade um, uh, component. Um, it's a very delicate issue, and it's, a, it's an issue that's delicate for conceptual reasons and for practical reasons. The conceptual reason is that uh, it's not completely clear what you want to do on the trade front. I mean, there is one version that says you, you want to offset the consequences of having countries uh, decarbonizing at different speed. Um, and that, from an efficiency point of view, that's something you you wouldn't dispute. I mean, taking as a given that the speed of decarbonization is not going to be the same, so there won't be a sort of single price for carbon worldwide, um, then uh, you, you, you don't want uh, uh, you know, more aggressive efforts in some countries to result in, in simply um, the what we call carbon leakage. So, so basically investment going somewhere else and without any, any collective benefit, it's just the same plant crosses a border and uh, and you know continues emitting at the same pace on the other side right. of the border so th there is a need there is a problem here to 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 solve that so that's version one version two two is a version put forward by uh nordhouse by by uh, william nordhouse uh, on um, the notion of climate club and which is to say we need we need a sort of sanctioning we need an incentive mechanism to to sort of uh, um, incentivize countries um, uh, that are dragging their feet um, to, to move ahead. And this sanction, the only universal um, you know, currency we have is trade. So basically let's use, let's use trade. And so let's say um, countries that uh, are doing a minimum level of effort, you know, discounting the different level of development and the consequences that have, uh, would sort of, you know, create this, Climate, climate club and, and the free riders, they would have to pay penalty to enter this, this, this club, which is a completely different motivation. So, and the two are, are, are completely, you know, uh, confused. And so this, this creates a lot of, of confusion in the discussion. So I think this is a question of analytical clarity. And I think we need to bring some clarity on, on, on that. 
The second is the dire state of the world trading system. Mm. Because uh, if we were to uh, sort of introduce uh, adjustment mechanisms in a functioning global trading system, um, that would be, you know, relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but feasible. Uh, because the WTO rules recognize the existence of other imperatives than just, you know, trade uh, and in that in environment. Right. Protecting the environment is considered a legitimate uh, goal that government uh, can pursue. And so you could, you could find ways to sort of ensure that, the, you know, whatever measures are being taken are not done in a way that distorts trade and serves as a protectionist. Um, as a conduit to protectionist policies. Now, the, the situation is that the, um, uh, on, on trade, uh, you know, uh, we've sort of gone down the, the, the road of, uh, of deterioration. Uh, we have a Biden administration that does not indicate it wants really to backtrack significantly from the trade policy of the Trump administration. We have this distrust vis-a-vis -vis the WTO system. WTO system. Uh, we have the interference of geopolitical consideration. So uh, it's it's extremely difficult so to, to find a, a, a way to, to have the sort of serious conversation we need to have on the relationship between trade and, and, and climate. So that's something, uh, you know, any progress that can be made there would be very welcome. Beata, so in your wildest dreams, what would you hope? comes out what is the one thing you would want to come out of government i would i would hope to see governments overcoming their saint augustine challenge mm. and saying give me climate action now rather than waiting until 2050 we never discussed what the uh, economic cycle and the political cycle that clash what it really means you know it's not so easy is it for governments on four or five year horizons to uh, to take those long-term decisions that is for another day as well i'd like to thank you very much michael spence jean pisani ferry and beata for for being with us today and of course our audience a fascinating discussion let's keep an eye on cop 26 let's see what comes out whether it meets our expectations high or low uh, we will be uh, posting a podcast of today's session a little later on you can download it on itunes and of course reviewing and rating it will help others to find us uh, for now though from me jonathan charles from all of us goodbye you were listening to cop 26 special what's at stake